Our Father and our God, we thank you for today. We give you praise. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your kindness. Thank you for gathering us together once again in your presence. Father, we say may you be highly exalted in Jesus' name. Father, as we go into your word, I pray that you to us by yourself. Teach us what we need to know. Teach to us what we need to hear. For it's in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we are going to continue from where we stopped in the last meeting on spiritual warfare. Our root text is taken from the book of Ephesians chapter 6, and that's where we've been examining from verse 10 to verse 20. We've gone quite a bit into this topic, and we'll be finishing in a couple of weeks. The last time we met, we spoke about the whole armor of God, and we examined all the different elements of the armor. I mean, all the things that Paul listed in Ephesians chapter 6. And we looked at the spiritual relevance of each that he meant. Today, we're going to go into what are titled Other Weapons. Still from the same passage, but they are not necessarily listed within the whole armor of God. But that doesn't make them any less important. That doesn't make them any less vital to our conversation or our topic for today. But before we go into that, I want us to open our Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 16. I want to read from verse 13 to 20. It says, When Jesus came into the by, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah. Or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art Christ, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will be a church. And the of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom. And whosoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whosoever thou shalt lose on earth shall be loosened in heaven. And he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Amen. So I want to speak about something very interesting that happened in this conversation. A misconception that is carried <coughs> by some parts of the church today about the true interpretation of this particular verse. Particularly verse 8, which is, And I say unto thee, Thou art Simon Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not really get it. Now, for the longest time, I heard. For the longest time, Jesus essentially was saying that he was building a church upon people. But that is not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not building his church upon Simon Peter. He's having two separate conversations we need to understand because it's related to spiritual warfare. But let me just analyze and tell you what was happening here. I'd reached a point where the identity of Jesus was being questioned by the people. And even those that were following him, because of the opinion of these people, there was 
definite confusion as to the identity of Jesus. And Jesus was asking, who do you say I am? And they were giving different ones. One prophets, John the Baptist, Jeremiah, Elijah. And then Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And there was silence. Because if the disciples were sure, they probably have spoken. And then Simon opened his mouth to speak and said, what? Thou art what? Christ. What? The son of the living God. And Jesus answered him and said, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. Sometimes we tend to read the Bibles and skim through stuff. Flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my father which is in heaven. What Jesus is saying to Peter in this moment is that the fact that you were able to give me that response, it is not for me brain, because you don't know this. You are not capable right now of knowing that I am Christ, son of the living God. If you were capable, if it was within your understanding, then Jesus would not have said what? Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. Jesus said this to tell him that the answer that he gave, though correct, did not come from him. Then he proceeded to what? Call his name Peter. And he went back to that conversation that he was having before, saying what? Upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gate of hell shall not prevail against it. What is the rock that he's speaking about? He's speaking about the revelation that came out of Peter's mouth. Upon the revelation that Christ is the son of the living God. Upon that revelation, church is built. Upon the revelation that Peter had and the confession that came out of Peter's mouth, the church is built. And that is why when we go down to Romans 10, we similar thing it says what? If you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth, Christ is what? The son of God and God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The church is built on the foundation of salvation and salvation is gotten by the revelation that Jesus is what? The son of God and confessing that he is the son of God and accepting him into your life. So that is the foundation upon which the church is built. It's very important because Jesus rarely used the word church in his teaching. He only spoke about the church twice in the whole of the New Testament. Most of the time, Jesus is usually talking about the kingdom of God of heaven. This is one total time he spoke about church. And I want to examine it to bring out exactly what the heart of God is towards his church. So now that we've established that the rock he is talking about here is not Peter, because if it was Peter, that means Peter is the only one that can give people access to salvation. If he's saying he's building on Peter, it means when Peter is not there, there is no church. But he's not building on Peter. He changed his name and he said, Of this rock, I will build my church. The second thing that I want to look at is the tense called build. He didn't say, upon this rock, I am building my church. He said, upon this rock, I will build. Meaning that the building of church was to occur at the time. That even if the revelation that was given to Peter is correct, the thing that he said is correct, Jesus had no church in the moment of this commission because the conditions that needed to be filled for the building of the church had not occurred yet because he had not died. 
and he had not risen up. And there was no salvation, and the Holy Spirit had not been given. And until these conditions were fulfilled, the church could not be built. So he didn't say, upon this rock I am building. He said, upon this rock I will build. So now we've established, at the very least, one aspect of the timeline of building when it started. Because at the end of this conversation, building had not started. But we see through scripture that died and he told them to gather in Antioch. I mean, at the upper room, they gathered at the upper and the day of Pentecost came and they were filled with the Holy Ghost. The Bible says that vital church grew after the message, after the ghost had come. Right? The question I have is, the second part is, when does the building of the church end? Is the church still being built today? Or has he finished building it? And I want us to look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 27, to answer the question. We're still on spiritual warfare. If you can follow me, we can start from 24. It says, therefore, the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be subject to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives, if Christ also loved the church, and give himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the wash of water by the word. 27, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that it should be holy and without blemish. Amen. The church would be built, would be considered to be built and complete at the return of Christ when he comes back for his church that has been described there without wrinkle and without blemish. And if you look at Revelations 21, we see where the church is pointed to Christ as the bridegroom, rather, and the church as the bride. We read an event that is going to have a future, given to us prophetically by prophet John, showing us when we are finally united and presented unto Jesus Christ as the bride of Christ. And that is the reason why Ephesians here, Paul is using the analogy between a husband and a wife to speak about the relationship between Christ and his church. If you read down to verse 32, Paul makes it clear that his point is not even speaking about human marriages. Because a lot of times people use these passages to try to teach marriage. But Paul has made it very clear in verse 32. He says, "What well, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Essentially, as it was using the temple of husband and wife, the main theme of the message is what Christ and the church. But we are going to present it to Christ as the bride of the bridegroom. So until such a time, Christ is still building church was still moving towards being a church that is without spot, without wrinkle, without blemish, was still growing into becoming a church. And when I say church, I don't mean this building. I mean you and I. I mean the global church, the body of Christ is still built by Christ until today. And until Jesus returns for us, until the second coming of Christ, the church is still being built. It started on the day of Pentecost and is continuing today. And why did we go roundabouts to speak about this? It is because of the second part of verse, 
verse 18 of Matthew 16. It says what? On this rock I will build my church. Then the next thing he says is what? And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Meaning that the second major element or characteristic of what will happen to the church beyond its being built is battle. Which means that until Christ returns for the church, the church would constantly be in what? In battle. Because essentially, the gates of hell constantly won't what? prevail against it. But it will not be able to. That is what Christ is saying. And the reason it's important to speak about this is because one of the things I mentioned when I started teaching this is that the church of God is not defensive. The church of God is on the earth in that the church is actively building. Christ is building us. We are working towards something. What are we working towards? The pulling down of strongholds like we discussed when the battlefield is what? In the mind. It's taking territory for Jesus that the church is actively doing. It is for this reason that the devil is what? Coming against the church. The devil does not have any creative agenda of his own. His agenda is to put a stop to God's agenda. If God did not have an agenda, the devil will not have one. Because he is not a creator. He doesn't know how to build. He only knows how to steal, kill, and what? Destroy it is being built. And that's important to know that church God on the defense. We are not waiting for the devil to come and attack. We are on the move and the devil tries to attack and we rebuff him. So the essence of the armor that we discussed over the last month is not to say, okay, now I have the shield of faith. Oh, now I know what it means to have the what? The breastplate of righteousness. Let me just be where I am so the devil cannot attack me. No. When, if you study war, and when I say if you study or read books, that speak about war, war takes, war tensions, war experts from like medieval times, from history, whether it's the French or the Asian or the British, not that all of them have the same philosophy on that most of the time, the army that wins is the army that is advancing most of the time. So essentially, most of the time, more often than not, the army that wins is the army on the move, that is advancing. The only time you cannot determine is when two armies are advancing towards each other. But more often than not, if an army, or an army rather, builds a stronghold somewhere, and they, they decide to lock themselves inside that place, it might be able to hold for a while. But one day, if they are not on the advance, an army strong enough come, to crumble them. That is war tactics. That's how it always works. Any music is mostly historically. What of war moves, but a few. And this thing is true. But there's a book that I have in my room, a very popular book, and I've watched the movie. And it's the name of the movie is Lord of the Rings. And Lord of the Rings Part Two or Book Two is called The Two Towers. And in that movie slash book has probably one of the best illustrations of this thing that I am speaking about, and I'm not going to go into all the details, but basically there was a place called Helm's Deep, and they were fighting, and they were holding a fort. 
and the good guys were the ones that were on the tower and the evil army was coming to attack and the army was at and they could have won the only thing that stopped that tree was the fact that the character called Gandalf told them that he would come advance from behind so essentially people are standing on a fort here and an army is advancing and basically defeating them and they nearly got them the only way they won was when another army that was on the side people in the tower came from behind them to advance and they were blocked on both sides that's how that battle was won. and that is war everywhere every time and it's important to emphasize this because christ and god did not intend for us to simply sit on our toes and say you know so we're christians now it's fine it's okay once you step into life you've stepped the life of battle it's a victorious battle yes but it's battle all the same god did not leave us weaponless and that is the purpose of bossing this topic so if we go back to our original text in Ephesians chapter 6, when Paul finishes listing the entire armor in verse 17, the next thing he does in verse 18 is to talk and say what? Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. In here, things that Paul has highlighted, but the one that we are going to start right now is the weapon of prayer. Prayer is probably the most offensive weapon in the believers now, and we cannot do without it. We can't do without it. There are major things that speaks out with regards to prayer here. The first thing he talked about was the frequency of prayer. And what did he say about that? He said, pray what? Always. Frequency of prayer is always, all the time, every time. Which is why it will have been impossible for him to say this kind of and make this kind of demand on a human being without adding the help of the Spirit. And that's why he says, always with prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Through the help of the Holy Spirit, that you can even begin to say you will attain what? Always. It's through the help of the Holy Spirit that you can constantly be in prayer, in constant communication with God. And that's the first thing that he talks about. The second thing he talks about is what? Watchfulness. Or some versions of the Bible will say alertness. It says, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Another verse of the scripture says what? Watch and pray. People don't understand. What does it mean to watch? Does it mean using your physical eyes to look at a situation? Hmm? I'm going to describe an in the Bible that captures what it means to watch and pray. And it's an event that you must ever expect fits in this boy door. So Noah, when he went in, into the ark, right, and they finished, and the rain had finished falling, Noah started to do something. He started to what? Send birds out. And depending on what the bird comes back with, or whether the bird returns or not, Noah is able to determine what the state of the outside is, right? So, send the bird first time, the bird came back with nothing. 
Later he sent, he came back with a brand in his lips. Later he sent, he didn't come back. Proving that what? And now they can open the door and they can go out. The fascinating thing is this. God is the one that shut the door of the ark. God won that point. And these are things that we need to think about and ask ourselves. Maybe God was the one that shut it. Why didn't God come and help them open it? Why was it left to Noah to determine when to come out? Watchfulness when it comes to prayer life, being alert, is a sensitivity to the activities of both the kingdom of the devil and the kingdom of God with regards to whatever it is that you're speaking to God about. That's what it means to watch. So in the map, we have a story, because I put story, and I'm not going to read it for sake of time. In Acts chapter 12, something interesting happened that really describes to us the act of prayer. Let's open it. Let's open it, even if we're not going to read the entire chapter. Acts 12 verse 1 says what? Now about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that he pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. Then were the days of the unleavened bread. And when he had apprehended, he put him in prison and delivered him four quarter battalions of soldiers to keep him until after Easter to bring him forth to the people. Peter therefore was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing. The church unto God for Amen. One of the things we've talked in previous lessons, we've spoken about how we said the battlefield is in the mind, and we said whoever is ruling really determines what is what goes on in that territory. Because Herod was king, the Bible says that he took James and what? He beheaded him. And the church was there. And after that, he said what? He saw that he pleased the Jews. We need to understand that the way this story is described. It is described as if <clears throat> Herod particularly have any vendetta against that. His simple reason for taking Peter in is, oh, I killed one of them, and it's like, everybody's happy. Like, because it's a political statement. He killed James, and the Jews were happy with him. Knowing fully that, like I've described before in this church, political state of every single place that was ruled, every Jewish area that was ruled by Rome, was always in a state of flux. That's one of the reasons why Jesus himself was killed. Because of, partly because of political power, because it felt like, to the Jews anyway, the only hold they had, the Pharisees and the rulers of the Jews, the only hold they had over the Jews was religion. Because every other thing was controlled by Rome. And their hold on the religion wouldn't disturb the presence of Jesus. Because Jesus was basically rubbish every single altar and statue and precepts that they had built to suit themselves. So they came. And Jesus is gone and dedicated the problem. His followers are doing more than he even done because they did more. Jesus' shadow never healed anybody. Peter's shadow was healable. There was a problem now. So the king rose up and killed James and saw that what he pleased the people he was ruling. So for now, that peace, for now, Jews are at peace with him. He has been able to achieve some form of political stability. So what did he do next? Well, I mean, if that worked, how much more Peter, who is the spearhead and the leader? And they arrested Peter. And the reason I'm mentioning flimsy, the reason is, is because if the church is up to me, for this flimsy reason, Peter could have died. Peter could have died. 
That's what watchfulness means. And Peter got a red. He finally said, okay, you need to do something about this. And they started to pray because they saw that their adversary has started to make a move that could destroy the church. We cannot afford to be spiritually unsensitive to the issues in our lives. And when we start to pray about something, we also have to be sensitive to the move of God. We have to make sure that we take stock so that you're not praying amiss. You have to be watchful. It's not with your physical eyes. And the Bible says that even when the Peter was with and he finally got out, it was like a dream to the people that were at home. They didn't believe that he was the one. What I'm going with this is what happens at the end of this chapter. We do not know the nature of prayers that were prayed for Peter's release. But the fact that it wasn't just Peter's release that came out of this prayer, but the fact that Herod died shows us just how much power lies in what? In the weapon of prayer. God did not just rescue Peter. He made sure no other disciple had been possible for any other disciple by that man to be arrested. Because the Bible says that, and God always does this the way he did it with Pharaoh. Let's read the end of this chapter just for context. 20. And Herod was highly diseased with them of Tyre and Sidon. But they came with one accord to him, and having made blasters to King's Chamberlain, their friend, desired peace because their country was nourished by King's cream. And upon said to the Herod arrayed in royal apparel, sat upon his throne and made an oration unto them. And the people gave a shout, saying, It's the voice of a God and not a man. And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him because he gave not glory, and he was eating of wolves and gave up the ghost. But the word of God grew and what? And multiplied. For the destruction of Herod, God set him up to a point where people put pride in his heart. And immediately the pride was in his heart. The angel of the Lord killed him and he says he was eating the worms right there. And he gave up the ghost. He didn't say he gave up the ghost and then worms ate his carcass. He said he was eaten by worms, and then he gave up the ghost, meaning those worms ate him life. That's how he died. Simply because he arrested one man, and the church rose up to pray. We cannot, cannot understand prayer. All kinds of prayer. Thanksgiving, supplication, church prayers. Intercessions written in First Timothy 1. Cannot underestimate the power of prayer. A Christian that does not pray is a Christian that lacks power. You can affect any change. If you don't take up matters to God in the place of prayer, you affect any change, both in your life and the kingdom. It's one of the most powerful weapons we've been given by God. The second weapon we're going to speak about today is the weapon of praise. Praise is closely related to one of the types of prayer, which is the prayer of thanksgiving. But praise definitely deserves its own category because praise is one of the powerful weapons, but unlike that, it is one of the most underutilized. Because for some reason, Christians are able to see reason why they should pray, but they rarely find reasons why they should praise. And they do not know that praise is a weapon. Here's my Bible to Exodus 15, 
And this is a song that we usually sing. If we've ever thought this before. Exodus 15, 10 to 11. It says, Thou this blow thy wind, the sea covered them. They sank as lead in the mighty waters. Like only, O Lord, among the gods, like the glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders. Amen. We sing this here all the time. But when we read our Bible, sometimes we should take a pause. It says that he is what? Glorious in holiness. Then he says he's what? He's fearful in praises. Why will the word fearful be used as a qualifier of God's personality when it comes to his praise? And glory is used for what? His holiness. Why? These are questions that we should ask ourselves. But the answer has already been given to us in verse 10. It's because of what he did to the Egyptians. What this song is saying, this verse is saying, is that when praises go unto God, God moves to the fear of God's enemies, to the fear of his enemies, to the fear of those that are against him. The things that God is moved to do when praises go up to him causes man to fear. That's what it means. Twice it's what is fearful in praises. Praises cause God to act a lot of times in ways that prayer would never do. Because there's nothing he wants from us. I want us to open to Psalm. 149, 149, and I'll read from verse 6. It says what? Let high praises of God be in their mouths, and a two-edged sword in their hand, to execute vengeance upon the heathen, and punishment upon the people, to blind the kings with chains, and their noble fetters with and their noble fetters of iron, to execute upon them the judgments written. The honor of the this honor have all his saints. Praise the Lord. Amen. This is a poetic psalm. Speaking about what God has given what his saints. The power that he has given his saints to execute righteousness on behalf of God in this world. To properly fight battle that we've spoken of, which is the battlefield in the mind. To take territory for God. To win souls unto him. It says what? Let high praise of God be in their mouth. And a two-edged sword in your hand. What is a two-edged sword? It's the word of God. And it says to execute vengeance upon the hidden and punishment upon the people. He put praises and the word together as what? As weapons. Execution of God's will. And we spoke about the word at length the last time we spoke about this spiritual warfare. But people need to attend their ears to the power of praise. Spending time. Praise God. To thank him, to lift him up, to say beautiful things to him, to sing unto him, to tell of his goodness, to tell of his mercy. The secret that once you discover it, not in theory, once you discover it experientially, it would actually, it's what David had, that many people did not have, did not know, and did not understand. That David knew how to get his God. And God is not proud. If your praise life is strong, if your praise before God 
is strong. The devil cannot do anything to you. You are too precious to God. Because where will those praises come from if anything ever happened to you? But if we live the life of God, I want God, I want God, I want God, I need God, I God, I need God, I need and not even take a step back sometimes and thank him for all that he has done. And just come to you where you go to God and that day you are not going to ask for anything. You're just going to fall before his feet and just start to bless him. There are people that remember only to thank God when we enter December. Then to ask God for new things in January. And probably those might be the only two times they step in the church. Thanksgiving for the year. Then prayer for the new year. Then we go again. It shouldn't be. Praise is a weapon in the hand of the saints. In Second Chronicles chapter 20, 20 to 24, we see the story of who? Let's go there. It's a popular story in the Bible. I'll read from 20. And they rose early in the morning and went forth into the wilderness of Tehran. And as they went forth, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, so you shall be established. Believe his threats, so you shall prosper. And when he had consulted with the people, they appointed singers unto the Lord, that they should praise the beauty of his holiness as they went before and before the army. Say, praise the Lord, for his mercy endureth forever. And they began to sing and to praise. And the Lord sent punishment against children of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, which were come against Judah and the smitten. For the children of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount to slay and destroy them, and when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, everyone helped to destroy another. And when Judah came toward the watchtower in the wilderness, and they looked unto the multitude, and behold, there were dead bodies falling to the earth, none escaped. And when Jehoshaphat and his people came to take away the spoil of them, they found among them in abundance both riches and the dead bodies and precious jewels which they stripped off themselves more than they could carry away. And there were three days in gathering of the spoil. It was so much. And on the fourth day they assembled themselves in the valley of Beriak. For there they blessed the Lord. Therefore the name of the same place was called the valley of Beriak unto this day. And then they returned of Judah and Jerusalem and Jehoshaphat in the forefront of them to go again to Jerusalem and made them to rejoice over their enemies. And they came to Jerusalem with sultries and harps and trumpets unto the house of God. And the fear of God was on all kingdoms of those countries where they had heard the Lord fought against the enemy of Israel. Verse 30, which is where I'm going. So the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet for God gave him rest round about. Israel had a lot of terrible kings and Judah had terrible kings too. In the period between Solomon and the exile into Babylon, the lot of terrible kings. And that's the reason why when a king that loved God usually came along, scripture tends to spend time on the person's story, what actually did in depth. For those who did like extreme terrible things, scripture will also spend time <laughs> to show you the things that he did. But for Jehoshaphat, what ruled his life and what got him this victory was praise. He didn't have to lift a finger. He didn't have to do anything. He just praised. 
he got the intention to praise God. And God settled it. Prayer and praise are weapons of our warfare. We cannot ignore. We cannot ignore. They are two of the greatest weapons that we have. And for the sake of this teaching, it's for us to go back and make sure beyond the theoretical, it becomes a practical thing in our lives. And God will help us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Shall we